Welcome listeners to Snippet Sports Science Podcast. This is Jared Coleman-Stark, and today we're continuing the interview with Dr. Adam Story. So we're pre-post most of my PhD from my last chat, and I, I get almost every day I think about your heat of gym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how much better that is <laughs> than my facilities. Because <laughs> I, I have a chamber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a small yeah. environmental chamber. Yeah. And uh, the chamber's not built for lifting. No. No. At all, yeah. I, especially at the weights that most of my athletes are doing, yeah, yeah. they'll break the chamber yeah. easily. Yeah. And um, I've had a few comments from people about it, just about the environment of the mm. chamber itself. And like, this is very impressive. Yeah, it, <laughs> this is just a box. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. And it's got all the bits and pieces sticking out of the ceiling of the chamber off. Yeah. But it's all this mechanical, yeah. sort of looking stuff, all the ventilation, and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so I've had a few yeah. comments. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, I mean, it's same kind of challenge over at, at Victoria um, in Melbourne. I've got yeah your classic heat chamber. We've, we've got your classic heat chamber here at ADT as well. But um, I guess if you're looking for like a good ecologically valid sort of training study where you know athletes are exposed to a good heat heat stimulus and able to do a decent strength and power session, then um, right. you almost need something like you've got a heated right. heated gym per se. And I guess. The limitation of, of what we've got downstairs is um, we can't control humidity. Um, obviously, or else you'd have bloody rusty treadmills. And uh, is it dry enough? Or it is a relatively dry heat. I mean, we've got infrared heat panels um, and heat pumps supplying a lot of the heat. But you've got you've got heat pumps as well. Yeah. So it is convection yep. as well as as well as the yep. infrared. Yeah. Interesting. As, as okay. a way to uh, supplement and almost top up. Right. Top up. Right. The, and you can um, kind of change the. We can change the switching on yep. each of them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. If you want more infrared versus more convection. That's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So yeah, so you're the only person I could ask this kind of stuff on. Yeah. What do you find for infrared versus convection? We actually found that infrared was was good for a couple of reasons um, in terms of it being financially economical. Like it's actually a lot a lot more efficient to run the heat panels. Um, oh, so just logistically, cost-wise. Cost-wise, yeah. yeah. Um, downside is it does take a while to bring a room that big to temperature. Okay. So having the combination of heat pumps plus the heat panels, you can bring that room to temp within, say, 20 minutes, which is, which is pretty good. So if you've got participants coming in or athletes that want to do a heat training block, you can just yep. basically crank the heat up within 20 minutes. You've got it at, say, 35 to 38 degrees. Okay. Um, yeah, and then I guess uh, once once you're in that training environment and you've got, say, a squad of maybe 10, 10 to 15 athletes in there, you can easily turn the heat pumps off and just have the infrared panels going and that room will stay at 10 yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you don't find it's, it's hot enough just from the platform being right over the panel? You're not at yeah. the platform being right under the panel? Under yeah. the panel. Um, yeah. I guess our roof, the ceiling in there is, I guess, of a decent height, but if it was any lower, you would you right. would get that direct stimulus. Right. Because that's, um, that's sort of one of the ideas that we've had is moving away from our chamber yep. just to be able to use heat more effectively in, yep. in the actual gym environment, yep. uh, ecological validity, which I think is massively undervalued yep. in research. I think we need a lot more ecological mm-hmm. validity. Is uh, we were just going to get mobile infrared panels, yeah, like put yeah, them on, yeah, put them on yeah, hand trucks, yeah, and just sort of wheel around it's hand truck infrared infrared yeah. panels, yeah. and just set it up next to the platform, yeah. and yeah. just sort of try and blast them directly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I reckon that would be legit. I mean, you, you could easily just have yeah, absolutely, just almost like these two or three panels just encompassing the athlete and yeah. 
it'd get pretty bloody hot pretty quick. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. our idea is um, trying to implement the intermittent heat as, as well as the continuous. So they can walk into the platform mm. and just the platform is hot, mm. essentially. Mm. And then they can walk out of the platform and then it's the cool, regular air conditioned yeah, environment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then that way they're not affecting yeah, yeah. the other athletes. So there can be athletes doing more high work capacity yeah. sort of training, yeah. and then they're doing their high velocity training yeah. on the platform yeah. without interfering between yeah. the two areas. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good actually. And I guess with the design downstairs, the only sort of area we as said the, the ceilings of a height where you, you will feel it, but you're not going to get roasted underneath right. the panel. Um, there is one area, and, and we have a, an Ultra G treadmill in there, and the Ultra G treadmill is quite elevated. Mm. So when, when so people are warmer, yeah, people yeah. are running there, there just happens to be a panel yeah. right above that one yeah. as well. So. I think that's a good combo, though. Okay, it is. Heat training yeah. with Ultra G, yeah, yeah, Perfect. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, the people that are on there don't typically like it, but uh, I guess you can get benefit out of it. Yeah, wing. Yeah, so I'll just throw in for um, uh, anyone who doesn't know what a Ultra G is. It's just a treadmill that you strap your hips into and then it uh, inflates a bunch of positive pressure onto the legs and lifts the body up so you're running it up to um bring it down to 50 percent body weight 40 percent right. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. yeah. So it's almost like running on the surface of the moon yeah so it's, yeah. So it's part of um what we talk about in a lot of our other episodes where yep. we remove the mechanical load yep. the body weight during the running yep. and then apply a metabolic stress the heating from the infrared panel above. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. 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 It's such cool. a good combo it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, so I guess what what sort of other areas would you ideally like to research? Death drill and PhD. Oh, anything. Uh, I had to do another, oh man, I had to do another PhD. Well, I mean, it's hard to see, you know, the, the value of doing another PhD. So I'm kind of, I'm complicating the question more than just the idea of if you were to work on something for three to four more years. Yeah. Um, uh, I really think uh, omics is where it's at like genomics proteomics that sort of area um i think we have far too reductionist yep. of an approach yep. in exercise science yep. so we look at one thing yep. all the time like we just look at testosterone we just look at growth hormone we just look at lactate yep. or or the ph mm. and we look at one thing and we try and draw so many conclusions mm. from mm. a single metabolite or hormone mm. and that's not how the body works yep. at all. It's yep. the interaction of everything that's happening. Yep. And so I think we need a better map of everything that's happening mm. to be able to be, to be applying more effective interventions. Yep. And particularly with genomics, I think we could leap just decades yep. ahead yep. in training yep. if we had more genomics because you have an athlete come in, you screen their genome. Well, first of all, for talent ID, mm. um, especially for smaller countries, mm. it's not too hard to screen an entire gene, genome of the entire country yep. for athletic talent. Yep. And then you just find all these people who fall, who've fallen through the cracks that have amazing athletic talent yep. and don't even know it. Yeah. It's just inside of them. I can't imagine how many people we've missed out on just because they never did sport. It's crazy, yeah. They're an incredible athlete. They yep. would have done it if yep. they had maybe the social support for mm. it, which then we could be providing. Mm. Um, and they just, they've never really done it before and never known that they would have been a gold medalist. Yeah. If they have the potential yeah. to do that. Yep. Because if, if someone came to you and they were like, hey, we screened your genome, you could be a gold medalist. Uh, how, how would that cha- change your training? It'd be incredible. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And yeah. then we, and then, I mean, this is where. 
people would be disagreeing with me, I think, a lot more. Mm. But, um, but then it also means that we don't need to devote as many resources to people who do not have talent in them mm. at all. Like They might be a good athlete now, mm. but they just don't have potential for that yeah. medalist or, or actually even getting to the Olympics or, yeah. or an international competition in the first place. Yeah. Is they might be very good, but there's a cap on mm. what they can get to. Mm. Um, and that's just... I mean, that it wouldn't be to take away training from mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. but just to acknowledge that there might be a cap here. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd, we'd obviously approach that much more sensitively than the ones that that we find that could actually be like have the potential to, to be gold medalists. So it'd be more for recruiting than uh, cutting. Yeah. I don't think it should really be used for cutting someone from a program. It should be yeah. used for bringing people into a program. Yeah. I think that's a much more appropriate way to apply it. And um, and the the bigger one to me is actually beyond the talent identification. If an athlete comes in, you can screen their um, you can screen their genome, and you can see what they'll actually respond to. Yeah. Because this is something that we don't like to talk about a lot because it would discourage people, I think, from trying. Mm. A lot of people don't respond to exercise. Mm. Like obese populations have a very blunted response to exercise. Mm. They don't respond to it as effectively, and that's that's a condition um, where they have a bunch of response but also genetically everyone responds to exercise differently like you're saying mm-hmm. um, some boys look at a dumbbell and then they just grow yeah, yeah just yeah, by yeah. looking at a dumbbell yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. ridiculous yeah. and um, and uh, and I don't think that's hyperbole to be honest mm-hmm. I think uh, you put some people in the gym they start mental training enough mm-hmm. that that mental training is genuinely enough mm-hmm. to make them grow yeah. I don't think that's actually hyperbole. I mm-hmm. think that that's actually a genuine fact that actually yeah. happens. Yeah. I think there's a good, there's a decent amount of evidence that mm-hmm. would agree with that. And so it would be more rather than we get a new athlete and we have to throw every other training program at them yeah. for years at a time yeah. until we find what works best for them. We can just screen the genome and just know from all that data in the background, hey, we train them this way. Mm-hmm. And then we're good. And especially when we look at sort of the age limitations that peak performance has for people going to international competitions. I mean, yeah. we, we do have a time constraint. So we have a constraint of what the athlete can achieve and when they have to achieve it by. Mm-hmm. And we'll spend years doing ineffective training before we can figure out what works for them mm-hmm. and then actually get them strong, actually get them fit. And I think it would, it would revolutionize, I would think it would, I think it would revolutionize training. Mm. It would absolutely be incredible. And health. Yeah. I, think, I think it would revolutionize yeah. physical activity and health yeah. in our community. I mean, ultimately, I think mm. that's what we really care about is, I mean, we love sport, but yeah. at the end of the day, it's about people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely fascinating, mate. And um, yeah, the area of genomics was one of the, my PhD with the Olympic lifters. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean that, that sort of thesis question came about like being being a coach and, and seeing these lifters train two to three times a day at relatively maximal to near maximal intensities across those three sessions and still performing exceptionally well. Right. Drug free athletes. And as I said, at that break between honours and PhD and, and during that coaching period that sort of got me thinking about that PhD question is how how the hell are these these men and women able to do that? Um, it was me. Day to day basis, yeah. I mean, six sessions, uh, six training days a week, two to three sessions a day. Yeah. You know, it's 
anywhere from 12 to 18 sessions within a week that they're doing high intensity resistance training and um, you know to try and answer that question hormonal stuff had been done in the 80s and 90s so I, we said that a, a genomics approach has to be done and we screened the, the uh, genomes of these of these lifters and out of the 23,000 genes that we, we screened we could see that those lifters that really responded to that high frequency of high intensity lifting you know they're a massive cohort of their genes involved in protein synthesis, um, protein carrying capabilities, turnover, all that kind of stuff. Uh, right. Repair, regeneration, we're just through the roof in these individuals. And again, it's just sort of question, well, chicken and egg, is, uh, was it the... I mean, again, the, the cohort that we used were highly trained. They had um, anywhere between 7 to 15 years of dedicated Olympic lifting training under their belt. And that'll so, change your genome. That would change the genome. So, is it, is it the case that that training stimulus really changed the genome in those, those top level lifters, or were they born with a predisposition to right. enable basically them getting smashed on yeah. a daily basis and they can just come back like Wolverine? Yeah. You know, and, and that sort of really opened my eyes to that um, sort of concept. And I sort of was thinking of what you mentioned before in that telling ID is, you know, shit, could we. Could we screen these individuals and find if they've got that predisposition? Will that change the way we train them and everything like that? And uh, because anecdotally at the time, I could see that with my top level male lifters, they could handle a greater frequency of high intensity lifting than my top female lifters. Females could handle great amounts of volumes, yes. uh, volumes that would absolutely destroy men. Yes. But the volume stimulus is what got the, the female lifters to their peak. The intensity is what got the males to their peak. Um, and again, there's probably massive hormonal interactions with that, getting the volume up to get the testosterone up yeah. and, and everything like that. But um, I guess the pain tolerance. Pain tolerance as well. Yeah, yeah massive. It, it, it's such a multifaceted thing. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, sort of Jamie Wheeler and Stephen Kotler's research into the flow genome. No, project. no, not at so, all. No. Um, you're familiar with sort of the state of flow and, and everything? Oh, well, when you say flow, I think flow cytometry. Is that or yeah. do you mean? Yeah, no, do you mean like flow state in the head or flow state in the head? Yeah, 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 yeah. psychological so, state of flow. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just when you you know other other people coin it as being in the zone or right, um, you know, or you know the the, the flow state is probably the, the common term, terminology now. But it's now these these individuals are sort of looking at different athletes across the world and. They've looked at um, you know, golfers who can get into states of flow in these, these really sort of controlled environments, but they've also looked at extreme sport athletes, so base jumpers, you know, free free rock climbers, big wave surfers, who just literally put their life in their hands, or they're up against a you know massive wall of ocean water, um, yet they can just carve up that wave like no man's business and they're probably yeah. singing a song in their head at the same time Absolutely. so how, how do those individuals get into the, those states of flow when other people couldn't do it so what, what they're trying to do now with this flow genome project is decode the genes that are associated with flow Excellent. which is which is crazy it's mind yeah. blown because well of, yeah going back to your concept of um, can we identify genes that would be attributable to the next gold medalist or world record holder I, I agree, but then I also sort of working with athletes question it as well because it, it's um, talent isn't always everything. And I've seen so many time and time again when the least talented athlete in a group, whether it's an individual athlete or a team sport athlete, um, greatly excels past everyone because their work ethic 
them is better and you know that sort of relates back to that flow genome project you know what, what are the genes that code work, work ethic you right. know, it's, it's are there genes or is it nature versus nurture it's just 100 it's one of these these paradigms that it, it's just blowing my mind <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah. well one that i've always thought about is uh you know when a uh, person with obesity says yeah. oh it's because of my genetics yeah i sort of think well i know you're trying to say that's your genetics for your physiology yeah but maybe it's your genetics for your psychology yeah it's your genetics for your motivation yeah to train and yeah. eat healthy yeah yeah. Yeah. And I I think we've we've really undervalued that's one of those areas that we've really undervalued in sport, I think. Yeah. Is the um is the psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. And there's a uh hallmark study I can't think of which university it was done over in the States. It's it's killing me, it's escaped my mind. But they showed like just the sheer um Effective psychological uh, psychological perception on how it can control your your appetite hormones, you know, yeah. hormones like ghrelin and your insulin yeah. response. Um, I'm not too sure if you're familiar with the study where they basically had um, a group of of people consume two different types of milkshake. One milkshake was uh, branded as low fat, uh, healthy, great start to the day, and that kind of that kind of marketing. Um, the other other shake was basically marketed as ultra indulgent way to treat yourself a mega shake you know of, same all, shake. of all ages exactly <laughs> the same shake but what they showed is that you know people's perception to that shake as i said um altered their their ghrelin response their you know one of the key hormones involved in appetite regulation insulin response so again it's it's your perception of you know if i eat that i'm going to get fat well well really Right, you know, are you going to get fat? You, well, you've thought that you get fat, so maybe you will. And um, I'm not saying that I'm I'm lean by any any um, way, shape, or form. You're but, pretty lean. <laughs> but, uh, people always give me give me shit about um, I've I've got an appetite that will match anyone. Right. Um, with my weightlifters, we always used to have an annual all you can eat ribs competition. I'm, I'm three time reigning champion at that. Yeah. Um, and people always, always give me shit around like how come you can eat whatever you want but you don't seem to get fat yes and uh, I don't know like it, it's my my. I just always had this belief that I will be able to metabolize it I'll, I'll be able to burn it off I, I don't sort of dwell on the fact that I've eaten this I've eaten 1.5 kilos of ribs I'm going to get fat I'm just like oh, that, was, yeah. that was a good one yeah. I'm going to move on so yeah. it, it again got me thinking around that um how much impact does your psychology have on your, your composition and everything? Yeah, as long as you're protein overfeeding. Oh, exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, it's crazy stuff. You know, I mean, it's, um, you know, stuff out of, out of Red Bull, for example. Have you ever seen some of the research coming out of Red Bull? No. Yeah, so I mean, it's... Um, with the flow states or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah. everything. So I mean, Red, Red Bull is just absolute world leader. Um, in terms of what they're doing, so they're again, you know, generally speaking, people sort of see these these extreme sport athletes and, and think that they're just a bunch of uh, young teenagers living a dream, smoking weed and just having fun. That's hard. They lose yeah. athletes. Yeah, I mean, not, not the way we lose athletes. Yeah. Like their athletes die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. high stress environment. I mean, these, yeah. these athletes are just next level, yes. and, and Red Bull's just really taking that opportunity by the by the wings 
but they've really sort of looked at, at, at ways of sort of understanding those athletes even more, you know, and, and so they're one of the leaders in that flow genome project, but the amount of, you know, crazy nutritional research that they're doing, psychological research that they're doing, it's just yeah. really, really biohacking the human, yeah, human body. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Do you ever get a chance, have you read the book Stealing Fly? No. No. Not at all. Oh my god. We'll go through the I'll find these, yeah. Oh my god, Stealing Fly. That's I don't know, I, I should get paid every time I, I recommend that book because <laughs> the of, we'll get a sponsor. Yeah, <laughs> the amount of people have recommended it too. But it's it's mind blowing. So again it's it's by Jamie Wheeler and, and Stephen Kotler, so they're the yeah. guys I mentioned with the flow genome. But um so they've got two exceptional books, Stealing Fires, one Rise of Superman's the other. Yeah. Both the same topic where they're kind of mm. they're trying to decode ex- excellence. Um, so in Stealing Fire, they look at um, you know top level, like a range of people ranging from, for example, top level CEOs like yep. multi billionaires yep. to successful um, people, yeah, Navy yep. SEALs to a little bit of athletes, but then sort of extreme sport athletes. Um, whereas Rise of Superman's probably focused um, purely on extreme sport athletes. You know what what yep. makes their physiology yep. so unique. But again, it, it's just mind blowing and, and stealing fire. They they really open up the doors on, on some, some pretty crazy stuff and you know and different uh, interviews and stuff like Jamie Jamie Wheeler for example said he's, he's never interviewed a, a billionaire that hasn't used hallucinogenics in, yep. a, in a productive work environment yep. just without um, you know sort of busting open the doors and, and just getting your mind to, to really look at abstract things or yep. things in abstract fashion so I say yes uh, yeah. and that, that's maybe a little bit of chicken egg as well because you just need to be that high on openness personality trait mm, mm. that you'd be willing to do something like hallucinogenics yep. or is it directly from the hallucinogenics that they can look at things from a different perspective yeah like uh watson and crick structure of dna yeah they were tripping yeah, yeah when they yeah, came yeah, up with that yeah, yeah. that's how they yeah. came up with it yeah is they need to be looking from a novel perspective yeah. Yeah. to be able to to come up with yeah. such a ridiculous idea as a double helix structure for yeah. dna yeah. yeah yeah it's crazy yeah I mean, even even you look at um, they mentioned in the book as well. You know, people with uh, dyslexia and and the, the prevalence of dyslexia and highly highly successful people like sort of Richard Branson, um, see other massive names in there that again have, have dyslexia. And in the past, traditionally, dyslexia has been uh, sort of coined or, or seen as a, as a learning disability, but now they're actually seeing it as a as a learning gift. Because it's it's your ability to yes you may not be able to traditionally speaking do um, some of, of of the the structured sort of reading and writing to what would be deemed sort of the norm, but your ability to perceive and, and look at at situations and, and questions in a completely different fashion, it says it's a learning gift. Yeah, and um, as I said, you know. It, as a researcher now, I'm, I'm definitely moved away from just straight strength and power at, at the level of the muscle. I'm, I'm, there's just so many different different ways of, of ways that we can potentially biohack to make athletes yeah. athletes even better, and it's just yeah. mind blowing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess it's take home messages: move to Polynesia, get on hallucinogenics, and uh, just eat as much ribs as you can. Good takeaways. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a nice study. Well, thank you, Adam. No worries. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a great chat. Yeah. Great chat. Yeah, it's a great time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No worries. That's all, folks. Hope you enjoyed our two-part interview with Dr. Adam's story, and a big thank you to Adam for this interview. Please visit our website at snippetscience.com or follow us on Twitter 
at Snippet Science.